Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Good morning, Matt. Morning, Stu. Good morning, listeners. Here we are yeah. on a... Uh, a well, nice... it may not be morning no, well, that's when they're true. listening. So. No, that's true. It may not. Yeah. It may not be Just morning, good. wherever you're listening. Good, good listeners. To have you with us, listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our listeners are good, mm. both of them. Uh, yeah. Welcome back to Thrive Deeper. It's great to be with you. Great that you're joining us as we continue our read through the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. And uh, Matt, we're going to be picking up where we left off last time with Ezekiel chapter 12, and we'll probably work our way mm. through to chapter 20, I think, today. And for our listeners, just a reminder, Ezekiel is obviously one of the Old Testament prophets. Mm. He was a priest and and a prophet during the Babylonian exile of the Israelites yeah. uh, after Jerusalem was destroyed and and the people were exiled into into Babylon. Well, uh, well, before as well yeah, as after. Uh, it's, yeah. So he, th- th- there was a few stages here. So yes. there was a... F- first deportation yes. uh, before the city was uh, exiled in 597. So we're working backwards yeah. because we're BC. That's right. And, uh, and Ezekiel went into exile. And this is a period between 597 and 586 BC. So we're probably around five, you know, it's about 591 or something around 590 when, when these things are happening. And so yes. this is in the lead up to the final destruction yes. back yes. in Jerusalem. So so Ezekiel's in exile and he's with the exile. They're still, you know, it's five years down the track from their exile. Of course, there were already some of the nobility were exiled already in 605. Yes. Uh, a number of years before again, and that's when Daniel uh, went into exile. We're going to hear a bit more about Daniel. This is yes. interesting because yes. there's a reference to Daniel here. So, you know, they, they've been there for a while, five years. Think about yeah. five years. That's yeah. a Fair while, but they're still coming to terms with their um, with their situation, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think a really good point, Matt, because we've come out of the book of Jeremiah where we've actually seen the end of the the story for Jerusalem, but this is actually coming back and overlapping a little bit towards yeah. the end of that story. Yeah, so that's right. it's important to understand we're not reading chronologically on from there. Mm. Uh, a lot of these things we've already talked about and heard yep. about uh, through the prophecies of Jeremiah. And, and yeah, it goes back in time it, a little bit and then we And looks at forward. the overlap of the two. So. Uh, but otherwise, uh, the book does seem to, the book of Ezekiel does seem to follow, follow a chronological yes. um, sequence somewhat. Yes. Yeah. So this series of chapters really contains some interesting kind of- um, Oh, there's some great stuff here. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited, Stu. But I heard a protest. Uh, I heard someone say, I don't like Ezekiel. It's all like, uh, you know, it's all bleak. You know, well, I'm, I mean, up to this point. Yes, uh, yes. First. And, and, I, and that's, I, I actually like people being honest. And, and sometimes it is can be difficult uh, to read. I, I, like I get, particularly coming from Jeremiah. I mean, we've moved from Jeremiah yes. uh, into Ezekiel. Uh, I think that's good to do, actually. Um, and, and I know it's a lot of reading uh, I, I think there's a distinct enough character to Ezekiel to make it not just more of the same. Like there's some real distinct things about Ezekiel. But there is going to be a very important switch uh, in a moment. And so if you're feeling that, listener, and you're thinking, oh, man, this is such heavy going, uh, do bear with it, partly because it's God's word. <laughs> so I don't want to be spiritually manipulative here. But look, most of all, but there, there really is, uh, there's so much to learn from here and so many uh, interesting things to pull out of this, and really apl- applicable things. So we'll, yeah, we'll totally. That's that's what we'll we'll draw out. I think now. for me, Matt, it's just trying to put yourself in the mindset of not just reading this as a historical record of what happened, yeah. but asking what's God saying to me about yeah. this and what and what He's saying to these people. How yeah. does that apply to my life? Yeah, today? and I think that's an important. Piece. Yeah. Now I I know that reading the story can be tiresome, but imagine being in the story, oh, Stu. Yeah. Uh, so so I think that's you know putting ourselves uh, in the context of this story is important. We're picking up from chapter 12. We are. This is yet again, we have Ezekiel acting out these prophecies. You do see this somewhat before yep. in, in other prophets. Well, um, Jeremiah, we, we, we just recently yeah, saw Yeah, and, and we saw it a little bit with Isaiah, so, different hmm. circumstances that are used, you know, name your children this and, and so forth. And But Ezekiel takes this to another level. Yeah. He's really acting this stuff out. Kind of feels a bit like street theatre, you know, in a sense. Almost, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, you and, know. and part of it, remember God had said to Ezekiel, I'm going to keep your mouth shut and, and you're only going to open. So uh, I'm going to open in certain circumstances. circumstances. Mm. So 
a lot of there's a lot of silent action here that has people leaning in because at this point I think you get this sense that God is really wanting the people to lean in now. They they had you know what the problem previously is they never listened. So now he has his prophet doing things silently. So you've really got to pay attention. So, so you've got to pay attention and lean in and ask. Yeah. You know yeah, totally. so um, you know so for example you know he'll he'll ask him to uh, he'll tell Ezekiel to do something, and then he'll say and when they ask you. Why are you doing this? Then say to them, right? right? So he's he's wanting them to lean into this because, of course, the big problem previously is that God spoke through his prophets very freely and they didn't want to hear it. So mm-hmm. you've got to imagine as we talk through this, a lot of silent action. So in, in chapter 12, he has Ezekiel pack his things, right? Yeah. You're going to pack your things. And so Ezekiel at this point in time is living in Babylon, just yeah. just to make sure there's yeah. c- complete clarity here, in a, in a house. I think some elders may have been tight with them around them, so, tight so community. imagine yep. a tight community. They're not yep. living in distant bonds or distant, yeah, whatever. Exactly right. yeah. <laughs> yep. And uh, and so, you know, pack your belongings for exile, uh, set out from where you are. This is from verse 3 yeah. uh, to another place. Perhaps they will understand. Um, during the daytime, while they watch, bring out your belongings packed for exile. Then in the evening, while they are watching, uh, go out like those in exile. While they watch, dig through the wall. Okay, now, I don't house. know which. Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, house. probably the house. And you imagine a sort of a mud brick house. And mm. okay, this is getting really. Mm. This is now you're really getting their attention. Dig through the wall and take your belongings through it. Uh, put them on your shoulder as they are watching and carry them out at dusk. Cover your face so that you cannot see the land. For I have made you a sign to the Israelites. So and he, so he does all of this thing. And then in the morning, in verse 8, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, did not the Israelites, that rebellious people, ask you, what are you doing? So this is, the, this is what I'm saying. So he does all of this silently. And they're, all, they're all standing around thinking, what is he doing now? Yeah, exactly. I mean, by, by this stage... <laughs> They're they're really leaning in, and and it's like this ongoing theatrical mm. prophetic thing that's happening. Mm. And you know what is Ezekiel going to do next? Like what crazy thing? Yeah, you know he's laid on his side for for a year. You know, and he's yeah. he's cooked a, uh, a a famine diet. Like he's starved himself mm. Mm. and cooked this famine diet over dung. dung yeah. You know, already. So he's really drawn a lot of attention here, yeah. and now he's digging through the wall of his house, mind you. But for the people to actually pay any attention to, I was thinking about this, there must have been some level of, he was a priest, so there must have been some level of respect or even question about maybe this is a man of God, because otherwise you'd you'd tend to go, oh, the guy's a loop, let's just go somewhere else. But there was clearly enough trust of the people that they were going to actually, even if it was just from curiosity, go, what's Ezekiel doing now? Is there something here we need to to know about there certainly was, and that's indicated by the the constant statements about the elders sitting around him. Yes, so he, I mean that's that's important because mm. they, they they've not just um, ostracized him like some madman. Yeah, they're actually really leaning into this because he's well, you know, I mean he, he's not hallucinating, and 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 they would have they would have understood the difference between yeah. that. You yeah. know, um, this is a, a very coherent character who's having these things happen. Yeah. So God says, did did the people ask you? Yeah, that's right. So, and then he, you know, he explains, uh, as I've done, so it will be done to them. They will go into exile as captives. Uh, the prince among them will put his things on his shoulders. And he basically, in detail, yeah. prophesies what is going to happen to Zedekiah, Zedekiah. right? Because mm-hmm. Zedekiah is going to dig through the wall. He's going to go out, the covering the eyes because he's going to be blinded. He's going to be caught and then taken into exile. And of course, this is before this has happened, this or is, certainly before they yeah. know it's happened. Yeah. Uh, because obviously we didn't have, you know, email <clears throat> back in those yeah. days. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, it's, I think it's safe to say this is happening before yeah. uh, before it happened, absolutely. Yeah. And so all along the way, we get this, and I want to point this out, this repeated statement throughout, and we get this throughout the book of Ezekiel. Yeah. When this happens, because obviously this is talking about something that's happening back in Jerusalem. So the, the question is, why did the exiles need to know this beforehand? You know, because normally a yeah. prophet would say this is going to happen as a way of calling the people to repentance and maybe God will relent and so forth. Yes. Well, no, this this is of a different nature to that because it's just saying, no, it's just going to happen. There's nothing, mm. nothing's going to stop this. This is going to happen for sure. And he's saying that to the exiles about what's happening back at home. Uh, why? Because, and this is where we get this repeated statement, and then you will know that I am the Lord. You know, you will know that I'm the Lord. This is the the repeated statement right through the book of Ezekiel, because one of the problems before is that they treated God like a God among the other gods. Yeah. 
He's just like Baal or Asherah. It's just another god to pay off or to keep happy. Yeah. But no, no. I am the Lord, the, the divine name. And, and again, just remember whenever we see the Lord in capital letters, mm. it's, it's Yahweh. Yahweh uh, and this is the divine name taken from the I am that I am uh, phrase there in Exodus. So in some ways, because these people aren't going to hear that these things have happened probably for some time until the, the yeah. final exiles come in. Mm. Is this perhaps God preparing them for the restoration where it's like, I want you to know. Yeah. Because this is going to be so yeah. in the future when I'm actually speaking to you, you're you're going to have no question about who it is that's speaking to you. Because otherwise, in a sense, there's almost what, what's the purpose of that? It isn't going to stop that happening. That's right. It isn't going to help these guys in exile. Yeah. It's actually really to say so that you know. Yeah. When further down the track, I'm speaking to you about the restoration. Yeah. Uh, you know that it's me. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. And I mean, one of the things that he addresses here is. Uh, this idea that you keep talking about this stuff and nothing ever happens. Yeah. And, you know, he says to them, these people are quoting this proverb, you know, the days go by and every vision comes to nothing. This is, this was something common in, back in Jerusalem. Yeah. Ah, oh, the prophets have been talking about it. Isaiah talked about it and Jeremiah talked about it. And, yeah. And uh, look, we're doing fine, you know, well. And it's uh, either, it's either not going to happen or it's way off in the future yeah. beyond us. Let's not worry about it. Basically so, say, no, it's going to happen now. It's, yeah. it's, and, and we're, you know, it's, at this point, it certainly is uh, imminent. So that's verse 21, 22. This is what the Lord <clears> God says. I will put a stop to this proverb and they will not use it again in Israel. But yeah, say to them, right. the days draw near as well as the fulfillment of every vision for there will no longer be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. Yeah. Mm. One of the big problems, of course, Stu, with what went wrong with the people and leading up to the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. This is something that we saw this in the prophecies of Jeremiah, and we get a lot of this in Ezekiel, is the addressing of false prophets. Yeah. You know, th this is a major problem, and, and it gets a lot of space. We don't need to go into this in a huge amount of depth, but I do want to talk, I just want to note this, because there was such an emphasis on true right prophecy you know yes. you know we're talking about a god here who reveals himself uh, this isn't a distant god who is very inconsistent and you know like the bales of the astro this is this is a uh, a faithful god who does not change who consistently reveals himself through his prophets you know moses and and and, and so forth and um, through Isaiah and Jeremiah it's the same god right so and even in in Deuteronomy you know there was this it was understood and, and already projected forward that prophets are going to have an important role in the life of the nation. But there was a very strict uh, test for prophets. And that test was, you know, if they predict something and it doesn't happen, that they're to be uh, killed, executed, yeah. you know. Yeah. You know, it's it's amazing that there, that there were false prophet that f false prophets managed to sort of sustain and maybe maybe they just talked cryptically enough to get around that or, or maybe everyone thought that was going to happen in the future and until we know it hasn't happened when you yeah. just we can't really make the call yeah. it was like <laughs> yeah and this is the moment really because they're about to see that all of those prophets were prophesying falsely yeah um because you know those prophets are telling the kings and the people what they wanted to hear, and that is that, you know, Babylon, they're going to defeat Babylon and everything's going to go well, and well, all of that's going to cave in. And they're going to know that these prophets were false, but they're also going to know that the true prophets told the truth. Mm. In the, and again, you get this repeated statement, then you will know um, when I bring their prophecies to nothing, then you will know that I am the Lord. Yeah. And so, you know, God is saying that I am who I am as revealed through these prophets, you yeah. know, this unchanging, faithful God who holds you accountable and, and so forth. So, yeah, so the emphasis on uh, on prophecy and the importance of prophecy is why false prophets and the sin of false prophecy is held up as being particularly serious uh, in this in mm. this time and place. And, uh, you know, we've said, Stu, it's not a calling that you would have wanted these prophets suffered terribly. I mean, yeah. Isaiah was a martyr. You know, Hosea has to m marry this adulterous wife. And uh, we looked at how much Jeremiah suffered. I mean, look what Ezekiel's going yes. through. I mean, yeah. nearly, you like starved to death over a year and he's going through all of this, all of this stuff. This and is probably not, ridiculed by some as well, you know. Yeah, that's right. This guy, he's and aloof. yeah, you're going against the grain yeah. here. Yeah, totally. So this is, you know, this is, and you know, I mean, it, it was in a sense the same with the apostles, the New Testament apostles 
apostles who had this similar role mm. of laying down this foundation uh, for God's people moving forward is that they all suffered terribly. It wasn't a it wasn't a role that they took on out of any selfish yeah. uh, desire or agenda. So chapter thirteen kind of covers yeah. covers these false prophets. Yeah. It's interesting. I love the the description God gives here about mm-hmm. whitewashing a wall. You know, the whole concept of just trying yeah. to cover up stuff. We even use that phrase today. Oh, it's a bit of a whitewash. Yeah, uh, which is really interesting because it's like, no, that's not the truth of the matter. And and God uses that example here through uh, through. Yeah, Ezekiel so that's what the prophets did. Exactly they whitewashed. Right. They whitewash a wall, and and he says to them, "I'm going to tear down, down the, the wall, wall that they whitewashed." Yeah, you know, because the paint's not going to hold anything up. Yeah, in that's right. Exactly. exactly. So. So, um, and and that's the the sense that the true God upholds the words of His true prophets, and and they yeah. uh, they come through, and they're going to see this now, and and this is accounts for the detail with which He's talking about these events, because they're going to have a whole lot of exiles. People are going to come into exile, and, tell and they are all going to report exactly that what He said came yeah. Yeah. Uh, came about, which, as you said, is going to give. Confidence. Greater credence yeah. to uh, the prophecies of hope that yeah. he's going to bring. Yeah. So this is again. I just want to say this is why it's good to bear with this stuff because I know he's he's predicting the bad and bleak stuff here. But do note the detail. Yeah, and the impact of this is going to be very important for moving forwards. Uh, the the other problem, of course, Stu, was the problem of idols. And I know we hear a lot about this and perhaps we can perhaps tire of this uh, endless, you know, prophecies against uh, the idolatry. idolatry of the people. There's an interesting little twist here. I don't know if you noticed this, Stu, in chapter 14, mm. where he, having addressed the problem of false prophecy, uh, because they always, when they when the prophets prophesied the disaster, they always prophesied the reason for it, right? So he's talked about false prophets. Now he talks about idols. But he says, 14 verse 3, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. This is an interesting way that this is put now. And this is addressing the elders, some of the elders in reality. Yeah, that's right. That have come from Israel. Uh, That's right. And around Ezekiel. So these are the people that others are looking up to. Yeah. And so outwardly, they're probably looking the part. Yeah. But God's kind of going. Yeah. So they haven't, I mean, idols were often uh, quite expensive and and large and and they hadn't been able to carry anything much really with them into exile. Right. So they've left all their idols behind Mm. and and they're thinking, oh, well, we're okay. We haven't got idols. Um, No, the idols are actually in your hearts. Now, this is an interesting turn because it gets to where Ezekiel's going to talk a lot about the heart. This is a characteristic. This is not a new thing. It's a characteristic of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, if if you do a search on the word heart in the book of Deuteronomy, it's right through the book of Deuteronomy. Wow. You know, love the Lord with all your heart. These decrees and statutes you must observe with all your heart. It's mm. so heart-centered. God isn't just looking for a mindless, heartless religion here, yeah. just token religious yeah. practice. Yeah. He, This is very relational. And this is what's one of the remarkable things about Deuteronomy and the law in Deuteronomy is that it's not just a kind of token religious practice that's being commanded. Mm. God is he wants he's after the hearts of his people. You yeah. know, David yeah. was a man after God's own heart. heart. Yeah. And in the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see a lot of emphasis on the heart and God regenerating the heart. Right. Mm. I'm going to put my law in your hearts. I'm going to it, it, the prophecies and Ezekiel is going to bring some of the most remarkable prophecies about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And it's going to be about he's going to talk about the transformation of their hearts, right? So this is this is going deeper, yeah, here, yeah. But it's not new. It was there in the book of Deuteronomy. So he says, you know, again in verse four, when any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts, down in verse seven, uh, any of the Israelites, any foreigner residing, s- separates themselves from me and sets up idols in their hearts. In a number of places here, the problem is seen as a heart problem. Yeah. You know, yeah. and yeah. it's interesting too. Before you move into the next section of of this chapter, we might remember from Jeremiah uh, that he was taken into a vision of the temple, and there were the hidden rooms inside yeah. the temple where the priests <clears throat> or the elders were also potentially worshiping idols. You know, whether yeah. that was a vision or he was physically taken there, we're, we're yeah. unsure. But yeah. it's similar parallel here to the elders that are now in exile in Babylon as well. There's a f- inch, few interesting details here at. at and, and we don't want to get bogged down, Stu, but just a little, if we zoom yeah. into 14 verse 9, he's talking about uh, like false prophets. He says, and if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, uh, I, the Lord, have enticed the prophet and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people. 
the clue to what this is talking about. So how, how would God entice someone into false prophecy? Well, uh, in remember in, in, in 1 Kings 22, there's the story about uh, Ahab and Jehoshaphat and Micaiah the prophet comes. And Micaiah the prophet uh, comes when all of the false prophets are gathered. Uh, Ahab gathers all of his false prophets. And Micaiah has this vision of in the heavenly realm, God sends a deceiving spirit into the mouths of the false prophets to deceive Ahab to his yes. ruin. Yep. And it's it's a very interesting case. First of all, it demonstrates that the demonic world is actually under God's thumb, you know. And uh, but that and even in in even though uh, it's not good, yet God causes it to serve His purposes and essentially to bring the problem to the surface. This is one, you know, one thing that God often wants to do is to bring problems to their surface, to polarize things. And so this is uh, that that verse is an example of God bringing out the false prophecies so that it can be it can be judged and made clear. It's like yeah. cleaning house yeah, right. by bringing it uh, bringing it to the surface. Which essentially is what he's done using Babylon and other nations that have come and yeah. he's taken those yeah. nations that aren't necessarily godly in any way at all, but he's using them yeah, as an instrument right. for his yeah, that's right. purposes. So then we get this this mention about Noah and Daniel yes. and, and, and Job, mm. uh, where God further addresses, you know, the idolatrous <clears throat> practices of the people and the impending judgment they're going to face because of those things. Yeah, so he's, he's saying, because remember I said it's the purpose of these oracles is not to uh, prevent, that, prevent from that from happening, but actually to show them that to, he is God. Th- that he is God mm. by announcing the inevitable. So he says, in line with that, he says, "Look, you can't. This can't be even interceded away. Yeah. I, this is. I'm just going to do this, and and there's nothing that you can do." And he says in verse 14 of chapter 14, "Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, that is in Jerusalem, they could save only themselves by their righteousness," declares the Lord. So it's interesting. That there's a, a sort of a kind of rhetorical device, like an argument there, you know, that, that I, I would I would judge this city, even if these three were in that city, they would save only themselves. And you, you kind of, there's a um, allusion here to the, to the Sodom situation, yes, Sodom yeah. and Gomorrah. Yep. But those, even if they were in it, their righteousness could not save the city. Save the city. Like yeah, even if yeah. they were in and even if they interceded, they could only save themselves. Now it's interesting, Stu, who he chooses. You know, like who who are the the three you know righteous men to to make this illustration work that he chooses Noah, Daniel, and Job. So first of all, it's interesting that at this point Noah is referred to. So obviously that in in some circles there's this idea that those stories come later or something that they were invented later in uh, in history. But this, I oh, think, okay. shows that these are all well known. Now, m- maybe uh, the stories in Genesis one to eleven took their final form. You know, were in a later th- date. that we have them at a later date. But certainly, these, um, you know, the prologue really to the Bible, which is G- Genesis one to eleven. Yeah. Certainly, there's plenty of evidence that this was very much part of the life uh, of the people right from the beginning. And so, it's interesting. The reference to Noah there as mm. a as a righteous man, you know why why Noah? You know why not maybe David or Abraham? You know well Noah I think is seen as righteous. I mean Noah did something pretty amazing. You know he has this it's almost this Christ like figure that yeah. that builds this ark and and well, just saves faith, yeah doing saves his and, family and all yeah. of these creatures and and and, and then faith in the midst of everyone laughing yeah. at him and no one believing that God's spoken to him. Yeah, he just I'm I'm going That's to do right. this. Yeah. And also in here is the fact that his family were really the origin of the Israelites, part of his. So it's that that's where. So in a sense, he's saving himself and his family mm. from like his righteousness saved them at that time. Mm. And so what God is saying is that even if Noah was there, he could only save himself, not, not even, even his, his family, family yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, in a sense, the world's in a worse, or Jerusalem's in a worse yeah, state. Is in it a, a worse sense, state? Yeah. Yeah. Than it was back then. Yeah. That's when, right. Yeah. You know that's right, and then uh, so, and then we. I'd come back to to Daniel, but Job uh, yeah. is interesting, yeah, isn't it? Because we don't. This is the only other reference to to Job. The book of Job sort of sits as part of wisdom literature. And you don't get any mention to Job, and some people think 
that you know he's a fictional uh, figure, but I, I would suggest from this that no, mm. you know that, that there he, this is a real person, Job, whose righteousness was renowned, yeah. and possibly someone that was in you know most probably in that pre nation of Israel period, yeah. like a sort of Melchizedek or these shadowy figures that are, that are out there that are worshippers of God, that are yeah they're out there. But this Job character is someone who uh, is renowned for his, uh, you know, his righteousness. Yeah. And, and then, then of course, Daniel. Daniel. Mm. And this is interesting because those other two characters are distant. They belong to the distant past. But Daniel is amongst them. And, you know, there, there are some people say, well, how could this be, you know, how could this be Daniel? But we've got to remember that if, if Daniel where. We're quite a number of years in. Here, Five or six here, but years yeah, that's least. right. Yep. Maybe even seven or eight yeah. years in yeah. to the, well, uh, to Ezekiel's exile. exile. But remember, Daniel, you know, had been earlier, already than, that. earlier yeah. than that, right? So, you know, so there's a good 10 or 15 years here where, where Daniel's been doing his thing. Yeah. And he, I mean, you read the, and we'll, we're going to look That's um, next. Yeah. It, at the book of Daniel. I mean, he becomes quite renowned. He's the most second most powerful man mm-hmm. in Babylon yeah. at one stage. Yeah. So he's a man of renown, and, and it's through his righteousness as well. And so uh, this is an interesting allusion, another ec- biblical cross-reference to this uh, person of renown mm. who amongst the exiles is seen as as a righteous man. Yeah, yeah. You know, yep. so very interesting uh, mention of those. I just think that's very, very significant. Again, parables. G- Jesus yep. was the, wasn't the only one that used uh, parables. And as we go into chapter 15, there's this parable uh, of the of the fruitless and useless vine that's not even good for wood. It's interesting, yeah, yeah. you know, because that's kind of wood of you know, if they don't bear fruit, there's not really anything else that you. No. Get. I mean, they might provide a bit of shade, but there's not really any not other use, use yeah. that you. Well, can't. they were used as fuel yeah, yeah, for fire. That's basically. right. You know, you might be able to make baskets or whatever, yeah, but yeah. apart from that, it's you know. They're, they're, so he's saying, you know, you, you've th- this is what you've become. You become like a fruitless vine, and and you remember, you know, in uh, John fifteen, chapter fifteen. Uh, Jesus says, "I am the vine; you are the branches." And and he alludes back to a picture that um, is quite a common picture in Psalm eighty. It talks about Israel as being the vine mm. uh, as well, and so that's quite a common picture uh, throughout the Old Testament. And, and Ezekiel picks up on this. And of course, the idea of this illustration is that God is looking for fruitfulness. Yeah. Where's the fruitfulness? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and he finds none. Um, it gets really, uh, the heat really gets turned up when we move into chapter 16 because there is this allegory or parable of Jerusalem as an unfaithful or adulterous wife. And it's a harrowing description of the nation. It's, it's like revisionist history. You know, it's going back to the beginning yeah. and he's telling their history and their litany of rebellion in contrast with God's kindness and faithfulness. Yeah. And this is really where the, where the husband-wife metaphor, uh, you, you get this that carries right through, right to, in fact, um, Revelation 21, you know, the new Jerusalem prepared as a bride for yeah. her husband. Do you think this is partly also because the people were kind of going, what have we done to deserve this? And, and it's like God's going up, well, yeah. let me tell you, yeah. you know, and, yeah, and that's starts right. from the beginning. And, and also, this is a moment of new beginning as yes. well. So yeah. uh, so these Let's oracles, the yeah, up, up to sort of chapter 32, 33, you know, we're in this period leading up to the final strike, and the final strike is in 586, right? Yeah. And the moment that that happens, there's even, you know, uh, uh, Ezekiel even says this, the moment that happens, there's this going to be this switch that it's done, judgment's done now. From the moment that actually happens, there's this sense of of turnaround, and you see that actually when the uh, when that happens in Ezekiel's prophecy, you get this turnaround, and you get these oracles of hope and oracles pointing towards the future. So this is a moment of we're closing off uh, a period of history here. This is what Ezekiel's doing, and and he's opening up a new chapter, and so he's retelling the whole history. Yes. Let's just recap now. This is how we got to where we are. And he's retelling the history. And it's a history of constant unfaithfulness on the part of God's people. And of course, there were moments that there were good moments through this, but those were the 
more the exception than the rule. Yeah, uh, totally. And so he tells this history in this allegory, and even to the point where you know he talks about you know his wife becoming a prostitute and paying even others to to sleep with her, yeah. and yeah. and then even sacrificing her children. children. Yeah. So he's really getting because of course this is they really hit the bottom of the barrel when they started you know worshiping Molech and sacrificing their children in the fire you just and and this is this becomes the bottom of the barrel described here in chapter 16 uh in terms of his wife sacrificing his children it's a, it's a such a sad grievous picture yeah that is presented yeah, absolutely. here. Yet he says at the end, Stu, in verse 60, yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in yep. the days of your youth. This is how it finishes, right? Mm. Uh, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. When they realize how good God actually is, they'll look back and think, oh my goodness, uh, we just got it so wrong. And it's interesting that you get this a bit in Ezekiel, this idea that, that you will, when I do this work, and I restore you, and yes, there'll be joy, but you are also going to look back and be deeply, deeply ashamed yeah. of the things that you did. And uh, it's an interesting thing that those two things coexist, this kind of grief, grieving over sin alongside the joy of redemption. It's the two things together. Yeah. It's not, it's not like they ever were allowed to just forget about it. They were always to remember as a sort of antidote to falling back into that. And you see this in the festivals, the various um, festivals yeah. that they celebrated. Yeah. Those festivals, you know, like the um, Festival of Booths, where they would live in temporary shelters and um, the Feast of Tabernacles, you know, they would not only celebrate what God did, God's faithfulness, but it was also a celebration of their faithlessness during that period, yes, right? So, reminder, so yeah. in all of their festivals, there was this sense of grieving over their sin, but then rejoicing over salvation. Those two things together were, were always held in tension. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting picture of biblical spirituality because, you know, even for us as Christians, yes, we rejoice in what Jesus did for us on the cross, but we also lament the sin that nailed him there. Uh, we we rejoice that we're saved, but we lament that others are still lost. You know, there's always these this double sided element yeah. in this age, yeah. right? Yeah. In this age, because uh, because we also need to remember that so that we don't fall away and fall back into those things. Yeah. We need to continually be vigilant and wary. And so that's the idea of them looking back and being ashamed, you know, because it sounds funny when you read, you're going to look back and you're going to be ashamed. It's like, oh, what? So we're just supposed to live in constant shame. No, 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 no. That's not the point is that you're to look back and think, oh, man, as Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, you were once dead in transgressions, he mm, says mm. to the Ephesians. Just remember that. Yeah. So essentially, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 does exactly the same thing as this. Yeah. He's saying, just remember, there was a time when you were dead in your transgressions, but God made you alive, right? Mm. And then that becomes the theme of joy and rejoicing. Mm. Yeah. Not our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. Um, and it's our willingness to recognize in anything, really. I mean, even if you look at people that are recovering alcoholics, the first thing you have to do is admit there's a problem. Yeah, that's you know? right. And so there's a sense of you need to be able to look back and see where you've gone wrong. Yeah. Because that's going to set you on the right path to move forward. That's right. Yeah. And and also, in, that's a good illustration because part of that is also recognizing a continuing vulnerability to that. Yes. And so they set up accountability and so forth and they... And and actually, you know, as I often say, we all have life controlling issues. All of us, yes. uh, they're, they're just just different. You know, for someone it might be alcohol or drugs, but we all have this these addictive. Or it could uh, be pride, or yeah, yeah, or whatever, whatever it is. is that's it? right. Yeah. And we've just got to continually be wary of ourselves. So that's, that's the good. that's the idea of uh, of those sort of. Reflections. Reflections, yeah. Chapter 17. Well, lots of pictures here, Stu, yeah. you know. And, and the um, he goes on parables. to an allegory mm -hmm. of uh, a couple of eagles, and this can be uh, a little confusing uh, in Chapter 17. But the two eagles basically are Babylon and Egypt. Uh, and this. The first eagle was probably symbolizing the king of Babylon, so that's, yeah, yeah. you know, um, king. He sweeps in like an eagle, right? Yep. And he takes Jehoiachin. Okay. From Jordan, planted in a fertile field. Perhaps Babylon, yep, that's we would right. suggest. Yep. yep. And then the twig grows into a vine, yep. uh, producing branches and fruit. So that's yep. probably speaking to the remnant that will come. From yeah. That. Yep. Yeah, that's right. The yep. second eagle, which is probably representing the Pharaoh of Egypt at the time, because they're trying to 
court yeah. the the remaining Jews in Jerusalem, uh, yeah. or, or the Jews are trying to court them. Yeah. Uh, but the the violence did turns towards you know they all yeah. end up in Babylon. Um, and despite King Zedekiah's kind of alliance with Egypt against Babylon. Yeah, that's right. And the, yeah. in the end, the outcome will be disastrous. And as yeah. we know, it was Babylon conquers Jerusalem, and, and essentially the Davidic lineage is taken into captivity. This picture language, again, is it's very prophetic, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and again, you get this, uh, the use of this idea of the vine, uh, and the you know the re- the breaking off the vine, the replanting of the vine. Man, mm. such a common picture. Yeah. Uh, throughout. Uh, and, and the in the illustration that Zedekiah kind of decides he's going to instead of putting his trust in God, he's going to hedge his bets and try to get support from Egypt. Yeah, that's and, right. And yeah. of course they never come and uh, he deals with Zedekiah for breaking his oath to Babylon because yeah. Zedekiah had made a promise to the yeah. Babylonians yeah. and then decides to rebel later and then try to tries to hope that Egypt's going to come and bail yeah. him out and of course uh, yeah. but they don't. So, that, so that's, a, as you said, that's a sort of allegorical, we don't think we need to go no. very deeply into that. That's an no. allegorical, again, it's, it's, he's told the whole story and now he's telling the recent story using that uh, allegory yeah and then and then he addresses an interesting issue it says in 18 verse 1 the word of the lord came to me uh, what do people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of israel the parents eat sour grapes hmm. and the children's teeth are set on edge uh, you know he's saying that cuz they're saying well, all this is happening because, because of our forefathers. what's happened in the past. Yeah. Where, and in a sense, there's a couple of things happening here. It's they're abdicating responsibility. Yeah. Or we're great. We're suffering for the sins of our yeah. of our fathers. And particularly given we just read in chapter sixteen where he's recounting all of the sins yeah, that's of the right. forefathers, and so they're going, "Oh, so we're we're suffering this because of those guys." Yeah, you know? and it's not. It's it's interesting here because he's not denying that there are consequences that they're suffering consequences. No, that's right. of past act- actions. Mm. But what he's addressing here is this um, that God's punishing them for yeah that. this idea that God's punishing them for the guilt of the Their past. Purpose, but yeah. what he wants to underline is that they share that guilt. I mean, this is the you know as we saw before, you know, he talks about the idols in their hearts. Okay, you may not have brought idols, physical idols, mm. but you've still got idols in your hearts, and and so he clarifies this, saying, no, a person is only held guilty. Because of their own sins, I don't. I don't hold you guilty for this, but there is this acknowledgement, nevertheless, that there's these consequences flowing down. Yeah. Yep. This is the you know the Exodus thirty four thing. You know, the God talks about God visiting the sins of the fathers oh, upon the children, children to the third and fourth generation, and that doesn't contradict. No, this, that's right. Because that's again talking about the consequences. consequences. Our human responsibility is such that our choices have multi-generational effect. Uh, that's the kind of authority that God gave us. And, you know, as Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, God's gifts and call are irrevocable. And so in a, this, there's this sense that God empowers us with this level of influence that our actions and choices can have multi-generational effect. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense in which God allows the dominoes to fall multi-generationally, but that doesn't mean that the children are held guilty for no. the sins of the fathers. Yes. Yeah. Are they, they, and, the, and this is another characteristic of Ezekiel is that we see a lot of emphasis in Ezekiel's prophecies put on the response of the individual. Because what's happening here, big picture, Stu, is that, uh, you know, remember when we looked at Isaiah, there were all of those prophecies about the remnant? Yes. God is yep. is honing his people down yeah. uh, to a remnant. And here we have a tiny remnant compared to Isaiah's time. Mm. You know, Isaiah was still before the exile of the northern kingdom, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's, you know, 10 tribes off now. And then and now, you know, Judah's left and now h- hardly any of Judah is going to be left after this. Yeah. And so you've got this small remnant. And now you get this emphasis on the choices of the individual. It's not just about the choices that your king makes. Each person is responsible for their own sin. The significance of this actually is that he's, uh, it's not only addressing you know, this abdication responsibility. Oh, we're suffering for the sins of our, our fathers. And, and it's not only is it addressing a complaint that God is unjust, it's also putting an emphasis on their individual responsibility, but also... The opportunity for them, because you know, he says here that uh, you know, if the father sins and and but the the child, 
you know, decides, no, I'm going to stop this pattern, and then he will not be held accountable. You know, God will forgive and, and break the pattern. Yeah. And that's important in this context because that's the opportunity that they have. Yeah. They have the opportunity to break the pattern of multi-generational sin. Mm-hmm. So having used that allegory of the unfaithful wife in chapter 16 and this yes. litany of sins that's flowing down from the past, He's emphasizing here in chapter 18. Here's the opportunity you here's have. Here's the opportunity. Break, break the, the pattern. Cycle. Yeah. Break the pattern. Yeah. And it's interesting, he goes to three generations as well. So coming back to that that scripture, yeah. uh, he actually goes to three generations specifically yeah. to deal or to speak to that probably. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he does it with, with someone righteous, the, the, the son rather than the grandson or the father. And then yeah. he flips it the other way and goes, that's right. the father isn't, the son isn't, but the grandson is. Yeah, so right. really dealing with this from every possible angle yeah. so that there could be no suggestion suggestion that there's nothing I can do. I might as well just carry on because it's my father or my grandfather. It's like, no, 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 you can be the person who breaks the cycle. That's right. Because if they're thinking it's all just fate and we're just suffering for the sins and there's nothing we we can do, then there's no impetus to actually turn this around. But he's actually really highlighting this opportunity that they have to break a pattern. And and the pattern did break, Stu. It it really, you know, during this time of exile, this becomes uh, a circuit breaker. And and they come back, and and, th- and there are problems in the post-exilic period, um, but they do come back quite a different people. You know, there's something really is happens here that's significant, and and probably the fact that they've realised that the Lord is their God. Yeah, you know, because of Ezekiel's and and lots of other things happening, obviously, but they've seen everything that Ezekiel has oh, yeah, said yeah. come to pass, and it's like, okay, we need to we need to trust. Our yeah, God. and you know, in- interesting in in line with what I said about the importance of prophecy, they it's during the exile that they become a people of the word. Yeah. They really become a people of the word. This is when the the books from, you know, Joshua right through to Second Kings are compiled during this period. Right. Uh, you know, they're 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 drawing together the oracles of the prophets like Isaiah and, and so forth are being drawn together here as well. And uh, they would have had the oracles of Jeremiah as well, and so they're they're really taking this seriously. This is when they they become the people of the book or books, mm, so mm, to speak, mm. uh, during this period. Verse twenty three, just to dip into uh, chapter eighteen, you know, he says, "Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked?" declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, I am pleased when they turn from their wicked ways and live. He points out here, I'm I'm not a, I'm not just waiting, sitting back, waiting for to gleefully for opportunities yep. to judge people. No, I'm. And this is the whole point of all of these prophets that have suffered so terribly, right? Yeah. What we might ask, why would God do that to a Jeremiah and an Isaiah and an Ezekiel? You know, why didn't Isaiah just flee during Manasseh's time? You know, why does he have to keep prophesying? And eventually, as we know, Isaiah was martyred during Manasseh's time, according to tradition. And we know what Jeremiah suffered. We know what Ezekiel suffered. Why? Why would God let that his prophets suffer? Well, because he wanted to reach his people. Yes. And ultimately, we see in Christ. Christ, the ultimate lengths that God would go to to, reach to actually to reach his people. Yeah. And so this is a God that is, is very much desirous of salvation. Yeah. And, and I discipline you so that you come back yeah. in a sense, not, not just because for the sake of discipline. Yeah. 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 So down in verse 30, you know, he says, repent, turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. There yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, because he's going to announce this, get a new heart. Heart and a new spirit. For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. In that's verse, right. Verse yeah, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it switches in verse 19. There's this uh, lament poem uh, about uh, these lions here, uh, these lions and these lion cubs. Yep. The uh, significance of that is in the prophecy about over Judah, the person Judah, mm. who became the tribe of Judah back in Genesis um, 49. Uh, it talks about him being a lion. You know, yes. if you heard the statement, the lion of Judah. Yes. Um, and so the imagery of the lions there, Judah is these lion cubs. Uh, that's the connection. There's a connection there with that uh, that imagery. But this is a lament that is sung. Uh, and in fact, it says at the end, this is a lament and it's to be used as a lament. So they are in a sense, you know, a lament, you know, in this case, it's, Something that that you sing at a funeral. Yes. You know, and essentially he's saying, take up this lament and sing this over my people Mm. because 
there's a kind of funeral. It's as good as already happened. It's done. Uh, yeah. So so let's start the funeral before the event has even happened. Mm. Really, as as a way of predicting what's going to happen. And the metaphor in the poem again shifts to a vine representing the Davidic lineage. Yeah, and, that's right. And the vine grows and spreads its branches under God's protection, but then it's eventually uprooted yeah. and destroyed by yeah. foreign rulers and uh, obviously yeah. signifying the devastation and destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, mm. that's right. So, yeah, again, you've got these these are images that we've seen before, the Lion of Judah and, yeah. and the Vine allegory uh, and so forth. So the, in, the interesting thing that I want to point out about uh, Chapter 20, and we're going to finish with Chapter 20 yes. today, but there's something really, so don't go to sleep yet, listener, because there's just <laughs> one more really yep. significant thing that I want to point out here. And that is, in a sense, to balance off what we were saying about chapter 18, the interesting thing in chapter 20 is that he confronts them now with their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And they are being called to take responsibility, again, not that they're held guilty, but there's this opportunity that they have to take responsibility for the whole pattern going right back of their whole people. There's this opportunity to recognize that and to take responsibility for that and to break the pattern. And in order in to sense, break corporate or collective repentance. Yeah, that's right. So there's sense. there's yep. corporate, he's calling for corporate repentance here, mm. not just for this generation, but for generations before. Yeah. And it's a way of acknowledging that we are the product of a multi-generational pattern. And in these times, confession was always took the form of corporate confession. You know, we have sinned. Our ancestors have sinned. You see this in the prayer of Ezra in Ezra chapter 9. You see this in the prayer of Daniel, well, Daniel chapter 9, of course, where Daniel, this righteous man who we've seen, confesses the sins of his people going right back as though they were his sins. And th- these these are turning point prayers, really significant turning point prayers, when we are willing to take responsibility, not only for our sins, and, and I mean responsibility in this sense, not held guilty, but this opportunity. And of course, God's intention like was all along for Israel to be a tense testimony to other nations of his faithfulness and his power. And yeah. so... In a sense, the nation collectively let down God's reputation, for want of a better word. Yeah. And there's an opportunity here for them now to redeem God's reputation yeah. through their obedience to yeah. him. I'm just going to jump into a little footnote here to a very confusing verse, Stu, in, in verse 25. We'll just read from verse 24. Because Chapter they, 20. Yep. Yeah. Uh, because they had not obeyed my laws, but had rejected my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths, even their eyes lusted after their parents' idols. So I gave them other statutes that were not good, and laws through which they could not live. I defiled them through their gifts, the sacrifice of every firstborn, that I might fill them with horror so that they would know that I am the Lord. You know, so he says, I gave them uh, I gave them other statutes that were not good and laws through which they could not live. What on earth is he talking about here? Did that, I don't know if that caught your attention, Stuart, you wondered about that. Yeah, no, it's um, good. Basically, this is the same idea, and, and the idea is taken up in Romans chapter 1. You know when Paul says God gave them over to a depraved mind? Yes. Uh, this is one of the ways that God brings sin to the surface is by giving people over to the things that they want. So, so essentially, that's what you want? It's yours. It's yours. It. So when it says, I gave them, it's not that these statutes, that they were statutes of God, but this sense in that, okay, if you want to do, if you want this, go, all right, then fine, I'll he give you He gave them up over to, to the rule of their own yeah, hearts, essentially. That's right. right. And so because it goes on to say, I defiled them through their gifts, the sacrifice of every firstborn. You know, he's talking about these, these, sacrifices. Uh, these onerous statutes mm. that they mm. took on that yeah. we need to sacrifice. Such. He's, he's like, well... I'm going to give you over to that horror if that's the so that you will realize your sin. But he's th- there is a moment here where he's calling them, and again, the big question is here: Will you continue with this pattern? There's a decision that he's asking them to make in verse 30. This is what the sovereign Lord says: Will you defile yourselves the way your ancestors did and lust after their vile images? Right? Will you? Are you going to break the pattern? He's saying. And he goes on to say, am I to let you inquire of me, you Israelites, as surely as I live, declares the Lord. When you offer your gifts, the sacrifice of your children in the fire, and you continue to to defile yourselves as you do to this day, am I to let you inquire? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you the silent treat. I'm going to be silent as long as you do that. And then he says in verse 32, you say we want to be like the nations, like the peoples uh, of the world who serve wood and stone. But God says there, I'm not going to let it happen anymore. So he's just said previously, 
okay, before I gave you over to that, right? And then when you did it, I gave you the silent treatment. But now, now I'm not going to let you do that anymore. This is an interesting verse here down in verse verse 32. 32. You say, we want to be like the nations, like all the peoples of the world who serve wood and stone. Uh, But what you have in mind will never happen. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will reign over you with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and without poured wrath. I will bring you from the nations and gather you from countries. Down to verse 37, I will take note of you as you pass under my rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Wow. Like, yeah. He's saying, I, I'm just, I, I'm not going to, that now is, you know, I let you run off with those things, right? I left you, I left you to your sins. I gave you over, as Paul says, to your sins, but now I'm going to bring you back. Because Ezekiel's going to go on and talk about the curing of their hearts. You know, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And so there's this sovereign work of God where he interrupts as, you know, again, as Paul says, you were dead in transgressions, yeah. but God, by his spirit, made you alive, right? And this is the kind of thing. And we see that imagery used in Ezekiel 37 with the valley of dry bones. When the spirit comes and enters them, they come alive, right? Uh, so he's not going to let them uh, go on their way. Would... Go their own way now. Yeah. He's actually going to interrupt me. So I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to bring you back uh, to yeah. myself. And it goes on to say he's going to purge those that transgress against yep. him. And so this is a time of purification in, yep. in terms of the exile in the in the moment. Yep. You know, there's a, there's going to be a season where this remnant is going. To, and as you say, there's a revival yep. really in this time of exile. Yeah, that's right. And and the other interesting thing in in chapter twenty, just to finish, you is God repeatedly says through this chapter, I'm going to do this thing. Not actually for your sake primarily. It's not saying he's not going, but because God does care about us. But he said, it's not primarily for your sake. It's for the sake of the glory of my name that I'm going to do this. That's why I'm going to turn you around. So there will be a people who reflect my glory. I'm going to make sure that there's a people who reflect my glory. And in a sense, what we've already heard him say is that whether in judgment or in grace, you you are going to be a message. The, they were, you know, the, the people of Israel were meant to embody a message. They were the prophetic embodiment of a message. And this, I think, Stu, is part of the reason why, because you think, well, why, if God's doing this now, why didn't he do this back in Joshua? Why didn't he just give them a new heart and let them go? And, and well, the people of Israel were always meant to be a sign. He says this, uh, Ezekiel says this at one point, you, you will be a sign to the peoples of the earth, right? So in the same way as you know, Ezekiel was a prophetic sign in the things that he did, actually the calling of the nation of Israel is to uh, embody a revelation about God. As a, as a, and so their history as a nation was meant to actually be prophetic. This is why we read this, Stu. This is why we read these stories. It's not just a story about some obscure people group. It's a story about a people who had a prophetic calling, right? And not only because they had prophets in their midst, but because what happened to them was actually prophetic. Yeah. Through Ezekiel, God is saying, whether it's through your your sin and judgment or through your restoration, through both, I'm going to be known. Yeah. I will be known as God through both of those things. So you are going to be assigned to the nations. A testimony. Yeah, through to everything that happens yeah. to you uh, through the nations. And, and that's going to be for the sake of the glory of God so that all peoples will know that I am the Lord. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thrive Deeper. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, ask questions, see all our resources and much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. We really appreciate the questions and thoughts about what you're reading as we go through the Bible with Thrive. Until next time, our prayer is that these shows will inspire you to go deeper and thrive. 